The Tom Woods Show, episode 1584. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by far one of the most dangerous economic misconceptions of the 20th century is that the financial crisis of 2008 was caused by deregulation. Unregulated capitalism led us here. It's dangerous because the next time this happens, they're going to come up with even worse solutions. So we got to get this one right. And you can if you read my free ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman. Pick it up at regulationmyths.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. I'm going to do something today that I think I've done maybe once or twice in the over six years of The Tom Woods Show, uh, almost six and a half now. And that is I'm going to share with you a particularly good episode or, I don't know, an episode I liked from what I call my sister podcast, which is Contra Krugman, which Bob Murphy and I host a couple of times a month uh, over at ContraKrugman.com. And in particular, in this episode, we're talking about a column involving Greta Thunberg and Krugman's claim that she is closer to the economics mainstream than her critics are. So we have a little bit of fun with that. So I hope you enjoy this and off we go. Hey everybody, Tom and Bob here with another episode of Contra Krugman. We're talking about Greta Thunberg and climate change here a bit, but really we're talking more about Krugman's take on these things. And of course, we've hit on climate change before, but there's enough, well, fresh material, uh, material that we haven't really delved into in the past that made us think this might be worthwhile. So the column is Greta versus the Greedy Grifters, dated January 27th, 2020. And of course, as always, we link to the column on the show notes page, ContraKrugman.com slash 216. Now, it helps that old Bob here, old Murphy on the other side of this thing here, happens to be very much uh, engaged in the debate about the proper response to climate change and whether some of the claims being made in terms of damage and and therefore we need to have a carbon tax make sense and whether they're internally consistent and whether we whether they thereby justify these sorts of things so bob once again comes to the rescue here with all the knowledge we need to smash this that's a little bit of pressure i've built up for you bob but i know you can rise to the challenge <laughs> i relish it all right good so i'm going to go in and summarize this baby and uh it basically runs like this krugman is saying that uh, Greta Thunberg probably knows more economics than does our own Treasury Secretary, who was critical of Thunberg for, you know, her various remarks about climate change and fossil fuels and what needs to be done and the cost of inaction and so on and on. But Krugman says, look, the facts are facts. If you study Economics 101 anywhere, you're going to learn that there should be government regulation or taxation of activities that pollute the environment. It's a classic case of a negative externality because without that kind of punitive government response, there's no incentive for private actors to take the effects of what they're doing on other people into account. And there's tremendous environmental damage that comes from burning fossil fuels. Climate change, Krugman says, among them, but not to mention the obvious uh, air pollution. He then says there are very significant subsidies that exist uh, that prop up the fossil fuel industry. Now, And by subsidies, he means tax breaks in part. He means outright cash grants in part. 
but he says that he primarily means not holding the industry accountable for its indirect costs imposed on society. So uh, climate change being one and pollution uh, certainly being one. So if it weren't for these subsidies, would anybody really, who in his right mind would be wanting to invest in fossil fuels? So yeah, it turns out Greta is closer to the economics profession's consensus uh, than you know, basically any Republican, more or less. But what if this economic consensus is wrong? Well, it could be, but if it's wrong, it's wrong because it's not tough enough on fossil fuels. And Krugman says, on the one hand, we have experts who say that the standard models are underestimating the risks of climate change. And on the other, we have estimates of the cost of reducing emissions that tend to understate the role of innovation. Krugman says that even modest incentives for the expanded use of renewable energy led to a spectacular fall in prices over the past decade. Those are his words. And so he says, I still find people on both sides of this debate who say that if we reduce emissions sharply, that's going to bring in its wake a substantial decline in GDP. But Krugman says that everything we know, those are his words, everything we know, says this is wrong. We can decarbonize without sacrificing robust growth. So in light of all this, why would anybody be so pro-fossil fuel and anti-environment? And some of it has to do, he says, with ideological commitments. Nobody on that side of the aisle can ever admit that government does anything right or has a, a genuine role or that it's justified for government to act because once you justify that, then who knows what you're going to wind up consenting to. But more than that, he says, it's just plain greed. He says this is – that's and this is where we get grift from the, the headline of the column. He says that given the scale of subsidies fossil fuels are receiving, this industry should be regarded as a gigantic grift. It's basically making money by ripping off everybody else, in some cases through direct taxpayer subsidies, but primarily in that it forces other people to bear the costs of its operations. And let's be blunt about what those costs are. Some of these costs take the form of sickness and even death because, well, that's what local air pollution does, not to mention the burning of Australia. And he says that increasingly bears the signature of climate change. So basically what we're dealing with are people who are ideologically blinded and also who just can't look past their own immediate interests and lining their own pockets. That's the gist of the column. So you can check that baby out uh, on our show notes page if for some reason you want to. And Bob, um, where do you want to start unpacking this thing? Well, I think in, in part of the reason, like you said, Tom, that I wanted to do this one is it's not just about climate change policy because otherwise, yeah, we've I think we've hit all the main points of that and largely be repetitious. But Krugman has enough throwaway lines here and other things that I thought it would be worthwhile to go over this. So in the beginning, when he's taking a swipe at, how do you say the guy's name? Is it Mnuchin? Oh, I, you're asking me? Maybe it's pronounced uh, suave. That's, that's an old joke for longtime listeners. <laughs> well, and then, yeah, we, we really, see, this proves we don't watch Fox News. That's, that's the good thing. Also proves we don't rehearse, yes. right? In case, in case, in case that yeah, wasn't obvious there was to any, everybody. Any uh, ambiguity there. So in any event, he, he's got this line where he says, and so it was for Stephen Mnuchin, Donald Trump's treasury secretary. First, Mnuchin doubled down on his claim that the 2017 tax cut will pay for itself, 
just days after his own department confirmed that the budget deficit in 2019 was more than $1 trillion, 75% higher than it was in 2016. So that annoyed me because for one thing, it's, you know, that he, he, Krugman's making it sound like how could anyone possibly be saying the tax cuts have paid for themselves when the deficit went up? And so you see why there's a, a problem with that because, well, the, you know, the deficit consists of both revenues and expenditures. And so the reason that annoyed me in particular was Krugman on Twitter recently made fun of Rand Paul. I don't know if you caught this one, Tom, but so Rand Paul had tweeted out on January 21st saying, did the GOP tax cut increase the deficit? Question mark. No, exclamation point. Tax revenues are up. And then Rand Paul gave, you know, a link to the CBO thing showing the tax receipts were up. Okay, so clearly what has happened is since the tax cut, the deficit's gotten bigger. And Rand Paul's point was revenues are higher now than they were on the eve of the tax cut. It's just spending has increased by even more. And so that's why the deficit's higher. Okay, and so Krugman says in regards to that, the big cockroach you often encounter in tax policy is the claim that tax cuts can't have increased the deficit because revenue has increased over the past year or two. And then he's got like a th tweet thread. And the next one, Krugman says, why is this stupid? Because we have a growing economy with at least some inflation. In a normal year, dollar GDP rises around 4%. So we expect revenues to go up, da, 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 da. Okay, so, you know, that that's fine, I guess, that in and of itself, Rand Paul's statement, you know, could be misleading and certainly policy wonks following this stuff could say, okay, come on, you got to do it relative to the counterfactual. What would revenues have been in the absence of the GOP tax reform legislation? That's what we should be comparing it to. But at the time when I read that stuff on Twitter from Krugman, I thought he was being a bit unfair to Rand Paul because I know there are plenty of people who say, the deficit went up during the 1980s and it was because of Reagan's tax cuts for the rich. And I guarantee you, Tom, 70% of registered Democratic voters would think tax revenues actually went down from the beginning to the end of the Reagan administration. I feel sure it would be even more than that. Well, <laughs> I, but that's, yeah. So, so there you go. And so that's why I thought, no, actually Rand Paul's doing a service there to make sure everyone understands that when people are saying, you know, blaming Trump's tax cuts for the rich as to why the deficit exploded to realize, you know, revenue actually is higher now than it was before, right? It's just spending is even that much higher. So to me, that was a very clarifying thing. And Krugman saying this is stupid because of, okay, fine. But then if that's stupid for Rand Paul to say that, then also it's got to be stupid for Krugman to say, how could the treasury secretary have said the tax cuts paid for themselves when the deficit's higher now than it was before? Yeah. So. Uh, right. But he's probably just being inconsistent. Well, <laughs> I don't know if we want to go there, but uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Just trying to think of lessons I've learned yes. from 216 episodes of, of Contra yes. Krug. So that's clearly what it is, in fact. But um, so, th so there's there's that element that that was uh, annoying. Also, too, it's interesting. I don't think we need to get off into this because this column ostensibly is about climate economics. But if you follow the links there that Krugman gives in this neighborhood of the of that argument, it goes to a New York Times editorial that's, you know, referring to the, you know, the, the myth that never dies, tax cuts pay for themselves and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Munition, they're making it sound like what he said was demonstrably false. And what he said was something like, I'm still standing behind my claim that the tax cuts will pay for themselves. All right. So he's, he's not saying they have thus far paid for themselves. He's saying, nope, I'm sticking to my guns. They're going to pay for themselves. So, yeah, of course he's saying that he's it's political and whatever, and, you know, he's, he's got to say what, what makes Trump look up. I'm not denying 
that it's a motivated statement. But my point is they're they're acting as if what he said has already been proven wrong when no, it, it hasn't. So again, just this issue of they, they don't even take people in terms of what their statement is. They just, just like pretend they're saying something else. And also too, what's funny is if you go in and look at it, it's um, the, the way the New York Times is handling it. You know, they're quoting different economists and it's along the lines, Tom, of, well, sure. I mean, it is true that economic activity is up and you know GDP growth is higher than one would have thought before the tax cut. But that's because the tax cut put money in the pockets of consumers. It's because demand went up. It's not because of the supply side incentives of tax rate reductions on corporations. So even if that's true, and you know, and I don't know what numbers are looking at to justify that, but still, that kind of cuts into their claim that it's just tax cuts for the rich. You get what I'm saying? In other words, they're saying, yeah, this did boost the economy, but that's just because it put money back in the hands of consumers. It's like, well, okay, but I thought you told me it was a tax cut for the rich. Well, we may have yet another inconsistency on our hands. You know what? I could just be, at this point, sometimes I could just be like a, I would say a tape recorder if that wouldn't date me to 1977. And you just press a button. You know, you have inconsistency. We have lack of charity, whatever. Mm -hmm. The sort of same qualities we see from Krugman week after week. I just, by the way, I just saw a clip from an interview. It was tweeted out by Jeff Dice. Maybe you saw this, that uh, Krugman is out promoting his new book. And they're saying, well, look, when you use demonizing language to describe people who disagree with you, how do you think we'll ever be able to engage with each other? And he said something like, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is it really demonizing if they're actually demons? Well, that helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. Are you talking about in terms of the zombies? Is, is that what? Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's zombies and cockroaches. And that's the thing. I actually did have a thing where I I, I started to do a tweet based on that, Tom. And, and then I, like, this was like last week when the book, his book, in case people don't know what we're talking about, Krugman has a, a new book out called Arguing with Zombies. And yes, we are aware, folks, that Tom and I also had something involving zombies. And I, I don't know whether that had anything to do with it. But <laughs> for a while now, Krugman has been, it, he he sometimes slips. So when he's careful, what he's saying is these are zombie and cockroach ideas. So he's saying, I'm not calling the person who advances it, but then other times, yeah, he just says, I'm arguing with, you know, well, the title of the book. He doesn't say arguing with zombie ideas. He says zombies. And uh, so in that event, yes, it, it is funny how like Trump calling murderous gang members animals is the end of the world. And, you know, this is one step removed from Nazi Germany. We all understand that, right? You can't dehumanize. And yet Krugman referring to someone who thinks a reduction in tax rates might bring in more revenue, that person is a zombie or a cockroach. I forget which in, in Krugman's book that is. Um, Bob, since we don't actually rehearse the, the episodes, <laughs> I, I'm actually not sure if you want to get super theoretical here talking about externalities or if you want to stay primarily focused on some of the empirical claims made by Krugman. Like, for example, everything we know but that's very strong language. Everything we know says we can decarbonize while continuing to achieve robust growth. Um, I don't know. Does that mean I don't know enough about this? Is that true? Is everything we know pointing in that direction? Um, I'm not saying this um, to make a joke or something, but honestly, I think when lately when Krugman says everything we know, what that means is I can find some people in the literature who make this extreme claim. That's what Krugman means by everything we know says, dot, dot, dot. Ah, you know, we need like a Krugman lexicon. Yeah. Yeah. 
just like when Krugman says the word basically to when he's about to explain someone's theory and he says, yeah. what he's saying is basically what that means is this is the exact opposite of what the person yeah. said. <laughs> That's right. But <laughs> even I would be lying if I just didn't put this qualifier basically in. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So everybody just mentally store these things in your internal Krugman lexicon. Yeah. So it's it, it, here. I mean, he's a bit, loose here. It's hard to know exactly what Krugman's talking about. But for example, and I apologize, I know people who read my climate economic stuff, I use this all the time, but it's such a great example. So William Nordhaus wins the Nobel Prize in economics for climate change work. And his own model shows that, yeah, the optimal amount of warming is like 3.5 degrees Celsius, okay, which is not even, you know, the, the stuff they're now pushing for is a 1.5 C target. And they're saying two degrees Celsius would just be catastrophic. You know, I'm not, that's not my paraphrase. Like that's the word language they would use. So to, to say it would be 3.5 or higher. I mean, that's just, that would be insane. You know, and it came out the same weekend, right? So this was in the fall of 2018 when they announced the Nobel laureates that year. And Nordhaus was one of them. And his work showing the, oh yeah, the optimal amount of warming is 3.5 C. And that's the same weekend that the UN came out with its special report on global warming to limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that's now the, the you know, the, the, the target that, oh, it's going to be tough, but we can try to try to reach it. And so in Nordhaus's model, so notice the huge discrepancy there, that Nordhaus wins the things and his work says, oh yeah, the optimal carbon tax would allow 3.5 C of warming. Meanwhile, the UN's telling governments, this is how you should aspire to, you know, to hit the goal of 1.5 C. And so the, the UN document didn't even try to justify that, Tom. It didn't even try to say, well, the benefits of doing this are such and such, and that's a certain dollar amount, and the costs are such and such, that's a dollar amount, and the benefits exceed. No, they explicitly say in there, we're not trying to do a cost-benefit. We're just saying, if this is what the goal is, because, hey, that's what scientists are telling us, then you know here's the way to achieve it with the least pain. And so some other groups were analyzing and saying, well, gee, to actually hit that target, that 1.5C target, you would it would mean that the so the so-called social cost of carbon was anywhere from 135 dollars a ton up to 5500 dollars per ton in terms of like what would it have to mean in terms of the negative externality to justify the policies we would have to put in place to really clamp down on emissions rapidly enough so that the earth's total warming is contained to 1.5 C that would imply that you know the actual harm from an additional ton of co2 emitted, is anywhere from $135 up to $5,500 a ton. And so, you know, what, what did the Obama administration say when they had a formal task force tasked with estimating all that stuff? And but that was for the year 2030, by the way. And they, they concluded for the year 2030, the social cost of carbon was probably about $50 a ton. Okay, so I know I threw a lot of information out there, but my point is when the Obama administration came up with, you know, using the latest models and so forth to estimate this stuff and all the cutting edge research, they said, oh yeah, in the year 2030, our best guess is the social cost of carbon is about $50 a ton. And meanwhile, now it's just a given in policy discussions that we should all shoot to limit warming to 1.5 C degrees. And if that were true, if that, if that really is a sensible goal, the implication is that it can only make sense if the true social cost of carbon is anywhere from you know, three to a hundred times more than what the Obama administration said it was. So- my point is that this is all a big farce. You know, then they go and estimate this stuff. And so to answer your question, Tom, that you originally asked there, yeah, when Krugman says everything we know, well, no, it, it, unless 
when you say everything we know, does that include stuff we know from the people who won the Nobel Prize in economics on further work on climate change economics? Because if so, then no, it's it doesn't mean that. Now it's a little bit loose, loosey goosey, because Krugman doesn't actually pin himself down as to you know what specifically do you mean, Krugman? But I I think it's fair to say that he, he's including the types of radical decarbonization that you know a lot of the activists have in mind when they're saying things like, can we still limit warming to 1.5 C or to get it close to it to avoid the worst consequences of climate change? I, you know, that's got to be what Krugman has in mind here when he's, or on the flip side, when he's contrasting his view with some of like even even some left wing people as well as the right wing liars think that radical decarbonization is going to limit GDP growth. I mean, they surely mean stuff that's in excess of, you know, what, what, like what, what, you know, William Nordhaus calls for, like the things of in order to decarbonize quickly enough to hit these popular targets that the UN now has just assumed the whole world should shoot for. Yeah. It's going to lead to serious ramifications. So that's the, the way I would answer that Tom, that in other words, the only way that Krugman's statement is true is if he means much more modest decarbonization targets than his reader's going to walk away thinking from this. It's kind of like the rhetorically, if you remember, Tom, since you narrated the book, the, the stuff about the minimum wage hikes and how, you know, Krugman was being interviewed. And uh, who was it? Do you remember who it was, Tom? It, it, it was like one of the Vox people or something. It, yes, it was yeah, Ezra right. Klein. I don't remember the name. I think it was Ezra Klein. This. It was either Ezra Klein or Matt Iglesias. It was somebody like that, though, saying to Krugman, you know, a lot of people are, so they were, the, the context was clearly they were talking about a $15 an hour living wage or whatever they called it. And the person was like, some people are saying that that's going to cause, you know, massive unemployment. What, what do you say? And Krugman said something like, well, according to the best estimates of the literature, that no, minimum wage hikes don't don't lead to a massive thing. So, yeah, we can do this. Right. And, so, of course, it's not the same thing. Right. Just <laughs> an average minimum wage hike is not the same thing as going all the way up to 15. Right. Exactly. So, th so that was the trick there that technically his statement's defensible. And he, if someone accused him of lying, he said, no. And he pointed to a bunch of peer reviewed papers saying a 10% hike in the minimum wage in our, you know, economic um, econometric analysis, blah, 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 you know, led to either a negligible or, a, you know, a 0.2% increase in unemployment among teenagers. And so it's not a big deal. But the question was, could we triple the, the federal minimum wage? And would that have an impact? So th that's the kind of thing here where what people think we're talking about, especially when we're pointing to Greta Thunberg, in terms of what, what do you associate her with in terms of her calls for action? And then Krugman saying, oh, everything we know says that wouldn't have a, a you know, the downside to GDP growth. It, it can't be the same scenario to save Krugman's statement. Folks, let's take just a quick break to say a, a brief word about C-SPAN, which is great and has been so good to me over the years, letting me get my message out there unfiltered, which is more than you can say for basically any other media outlet. So this election season with C-SPAN, go deep, direct, and unfiltered. C-SPAN's campaign 2020 differs from other political coverage for one simple reason. It's C-SPAN. C-SPAN brings you an unfiltered view of politics so you can see the biggest picture for yourself and make up your own mind. On C-SPAN, you'll find in-depth, uninterrupted coverage of the candidates, the issues, and the events that are steering us to election day. Follow the campaigns and watch the town halls, rallies, and more live as they happen on C-SPAN. Then dig even deeper and search the candidates' positions over the years using C-SPAN's online archive with more than 250,000 hours of video. Get an unfiltered view of politics with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 on the C-SPAN television networks, on the C-SPAN app, or online at cspan.org. 
all brought to you as a public service by your television provider. Make up your own mind with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. All right, can we get to the objection, though, that I think most people would think does kind of stick, which is the thing that, after all, uh, fossil fuels are subsidized in one form or another. I mean, you and I know that a tax break is not a subsidy, but the other forms of subsidy he's talking about, uh, I mean, you know, you, you work with the uh, Institute for Energy Research, so this must come up. How do you think about that? Um, by the way, just just because it happened, I actually have stepped down from that role, so I'm announcing it for the first time publicly here on Contra Krugman. Wow, even in the first time privately, because you didn't even tell me. <laughs> yeah, we talk so much, Tom, and it's amazing. It yeah, I know. Jeez, I guess we're talking about <laughs> nothing of significance. Okay, all right, <laughs> go ahead. Um, where was it? Oh, yeah, so the, for people to understand, when Krugman's coming up with these numbers about what does he say? Like $3 million a worker or something like that? Or is it? Yeah. 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 $3 million yeah. a worker. Yeah. That, I mean, to come up with where they're getting these gigantic numbers is they're, they're calculating how much the climate damage is from fossil fuel emissions. So it's, they're saying if we were treating this rationally, then we would be taxing based on, you know, such, such and such per ton of emissions. And since we're not, that's a de facto or an implicit tax break to them. So that's the way they that the IMF or whoever it is that comes up with these numbers are generating, you know, the global amount of subsidies to the fossil fuel industries is such, and it's a huge number with a, with trillions. That's where it's coming from. I mean, because there are actually explicit subsidies too. Like, like in some uh, oil-rich countries, for example, they explicitly subsidize gasoline, stuff like that. So, th- you know, that really is, uh, you know, from in terms of Econ 101, just, oh yeah, that, that's an inefficiency and it leads to more driving than otherwise would happen and blah, blah, blah just like, you know, subsidizing water or anything, subsidizing Coca-Cola would be inefficient in terms of a standard economic model. So there is that element too. Um, just as an aside, and we'll put a link here in the show notes page if, you want, if you're curious, folks, but in terms of actual, you know, federal expenditures, or even if you include favorable tax treatment, which again, as you say, Tom, letting people keep more of their money is, is not the same thing as a subsidy, but even using that language, it's not even close in terms of how much renewables and politically correct energies are subsidized. And particularly if you adjust for the amount of output, right? So in other words, it's one thing to say, how much money does the the coal industry get from the government versus the wind industry? But then if you say per kilowatt hour of electricity produced, then the wind sub, I mean, you can barely even see it on on a bar chart anymore because the, you know, for wind and solar, it's so big compared to, the fossil fuels, because, you know, the point is they get more total dollars and they produce a lot less in terms of, you know, comparable units of, of energy output. Um, as far as the, as the other stuff, I mean, it's, again, Tom, like I said, you, you could come up with these numbers. I guess the last thing I'll say in the social cost of carbon stuff, which is what they would have to use to plug in to come up with these estimates, it's completely, it's, it's largely arbitrary. I'll say it that way. I don't want to be like Krugman and say, everything we know says this number is meaningless. But it's a lot of it is just like what the discount rate you're going to use is. All right. So, my so just to back up, make sure I didn't lose people there. What I'm saying is for the way they come up with these humongous numbers to talk about subsidies to fossil fuels, is they say what ought they to be getting taxed on in terms of the negative externality. Governments around the world are not taxing them based on that. And so that's an implicit subsidy. And so to calculate it, let's figure out, you know, total emissions times what they should have been paying. And so I'm saying to come up with that number, you need to know, okay, well, then what's the per unit 
damage that they're not being taxed on. And so that number, what's called the social cost of carbon, it's not like measuring the charge on an electron or saying what's the mass of the moon. It's not some number that's out there in nature that we're estimating because it's a crucial part of the calculation because what you're doing is you're saying you emit an extra ton of CO2 today, then in a computer model, that's going to cause more total damages to humans over the next few centuries than otherwise would have happened. And what's the present discounted value of that future flow of extra harm from climate change damage? That's what the negative externality is of the social cost of carbon from one more ton of CO2 right now is. So since you're converting future harms into a present spot value, the discount rate you use is huge in that calculation. Going from a 3% to a 5% discount rate you know, can make the, the social cost of carbon collapse down to the single digits and go into like a 7% discount rate can make it even go negative, All right? So that's the kind of thing I mean where it's weird if you just change the discount rate, you can all of a sudden say, oh, we should be subsidizing coal because actually climate change helps humanity. And you should say, well, how's that possible, Bob? Well, the, the more um, CO2 there is, for example, there's, there's more uh, plant fertilization. You know, pl plants do better, like a regular, like a literal greenhouse, commercial greenhouse might have CO2 levels that are triple what the current atmospheric level is right now because plants grow better when there's more CO2. So stuff like that, there, you know, there's some harms and some benefits in these standard models from emitting more gas. Fewer elderly people die in the winter as temperatures rise, for example. So there are offsetting things and it just so happens in these models, at least for one of them, that there's actually net benefits from additional warming for a few decades and then it flips and goes negative. So if you have a high enough discount rate, those benefits get counted more highly than the future harms. And oh, look at this. Carbon dioxide emissions have a positive externality. We should be subsidizing them because the market's failing. We're underproducing coal-fired electricity. So th that's what I'm getting at here. Too. Like this stuff is so arbitrary. And, and that's where these numbers come from. And in any event, the type of stuff that Greta Thunberg is pushing for, like so in, in, in particular what Mnuchin was responding to is apparently she was calling for total divestment from fossil fuels. And Mnuchin was saying she needs to go study economics. And so the way Krugman is responding to that is he's like, no, actually every Econ 101 textbook says you should tax carbon dioxide emissions. And okay, that, yeah, that's true. But every Econ 101 textbook does not say the optimal amount of investment in natural gas is $0. But yet that seems to have been what Greta Thunberg's point was. So Mnuchin is still correct that she should go study economics. Wow, good, good, good. And you know where she could study some economics? In Bob's book. You thought we were going to do the <laughs> cruise. No, no, no. She could get Bob's book, Contra Krugman, uh, which it just smashes everything, every topic in the world, uh, the conventional and Krugman wisdom. Uh, ContraKrugmanBook.com is where you got to go. If you're a fan of this podcast and you don't have that book, not sure that's possible. So ContraKrugmanBook.com is where to go. And the audiobook, the old man here is the narrator. You can get the audiobook for free at TomWoodsAudio.com. If you've never joined uh, Audible, you start off with a free book. So it's great. And and Bob here still gets paid his royalty, even if you get that free book at TomWoodsAudio.com. Everybody's happy. And you know where you I was going to say, where where you, be what, what were you mentioning? I don't get what, what other thing could people have had in mind. Besides the book? Well, 
well, now that you just kind of by jumping in so soon, you ruined my other segue, <laughs> which was terrible. So it's just as well you obscured it. I was saying everybody's happy. And then I was, I was say, taking the fall for you. I was making it look like it, it was my fumble. <laughs> you know where else they're going to be yeah. happy. So, yeah, obviously with Dave Smith and Scott Horton joining us on this year's Contra Cruise and a roast of Dave, plus all that remains vocalist Phil Labonte joining us, it is going to be the best time ever which is appropriate for the fifth Contra Cruise. Nice round number. We're going to pull out all the stops. So you got to make sure and show up for that and book your cabin early so you don't wind up in some utility closet toward the back of the ship. <laughs> so do that over at ContraCruise.com. Every cruise, though, is a nice round number, right? Like we've never gone on a 6.7th cruise. It depends on how you define round. <laughs> all right. In a base 10 system, 10s and zeros and fives, those are round. Okay. But yes, you're true. We're, it's true. Next year, we'll, we're not going to be doing uh, Contra Cruise 6.73 times 10 to the negative 12th cruise. Okay. That's true. Yeah. All right. All right. You have anything else you want to say after that little fiasco? Yes, I do. Of course you do. Yeah. You wouldn't be Murphy if you didn't. <laughs> uh, there was something that bugged me, and I... I put my finger on it. Um, it, it, it and I was emailing some other kind of, I don't know if they want me to use their name though, so I won't, but I just want to acknowledge other people helped me put my finger on exactly what was bothering me about this. But anyway, Krugman says, um, in a sane world, we'd be trying to shut this grift down. But the grifters, which overwhelmingly means corporations and investors, since little of that $3 million per worker subsidy trickles down to the workers themselves, have bought themselves a lot of political influence. Okay, so again, the context here, he's talking about these huge subsidies that the fossil fuel companies are getting because they're not being taxed appropriately on the negative externality of their operations. And then he's saying, it, you know, that works out to $3 million per worker in those industries. But he wants to be clear, look, it's not the, you know, it's not the guy in the coal mine I'm talking about here who's, who's benefiting from that. It's, so the reason that's misleading is one of the biggest beneficiaries of the subsidies would be the consumers, right? The people who drive automobiles that use regular gasoline, the people who use electricity that was produced either through coal or natural gas. You see what I'm, I'm getting at there, Tom? In other words, crew is making it sound like, oh yeah, these industries are being subsidized and the, you know, to the tune of such and such trillion dollars. And so the only possible beneficiaries from that, from those subsidies could be the workers or the shareholders. And, you know, and I'm saying it's, it's the shareholders, the workers aren't really seeing much of that. And so incidentally, he just asserts that he doesn't give any arguments to, you know, well, gee, if, like coal work, coal, you know, people who work in a coal mine, that's actually somewhat specialized. Like they're not completely interchangeable with everybody else. And so, you know, it's, I could see that like that, that's why as coal towns shut down, those workers are unhappy about it. And you know, why they vote for Trump. I don't know if I'm connecting the dots, yeah. but I'm saying if, if a coal miner is interchangeable with a fast food worker or a school teacher, then why do coal miners care that there's a war on coal? So there's there's that element. So Krugman's just asserting that with no argument as to why is it that there aren't some workers that are actually, you know, just like don't tariffs on automobiles help Detroit auto workers? According to Krugman, they wouldn't. So, you know, there, there's that element. But again, the, the big thing here is it's um, he's totally overlooking the fact that consumers might benefit. Now, just to, to switch it elsewhere, like when Krugman's talking about how the Republicans want to cut food stamps or... They don't want to expand Medicaid in various states and so on. 
there it's crystal clear to him that when the government subsidizes something, for example, food stamps, the beneficiaries aren't big ag or big grocery store. The beneficiaries are the people who get the food stamps, right? You know, in other words, why, why isn't it just the prices automatically rise so that the benefit of food stamps is completely absorbed by the big giant corporations? So since, you know, Republicans who want to, in other words, why isn't it when Republicans want to cut food stamps subsidies that they're striking a blow at the heart of the, the people who own the big grocery stores? That's not the way Krugman analyzes it. He says, no, they're, they're heartless. They want to hurt poor people. Yeah. So likewise here, if, if Republicans want to subsidize fossil fuel industries, how come, oh, it's because they want to help rich people, not they really want to help poor people who are trying to get to work and can't afford gas to be too expensive. I'm waiting, Tom. I th- <laughs> <laughs> no, look, um, when I saw this column, I thought, I, I, even though the tone he takes is, I don't know, maybe I'm getting more sensitive to it, but it's it's really aggressively irritating. Um <laughs> And, and and the thing is, but I try to be fair. I try to think sometimes I can be pretty darn sarcastic toward people who disagree with me, and maybe people read me and they feel the same way. You know, like I, I want to try oh, to be on. as everybody loves you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think looking at the responses I get, that is about the, yeah. the correct assessment. But you're basically the Mister Rogers of our day. I, I mean, the only people I really think of as being absolutely irredeemable tend to be people in the state itself. Or people who just, uh, for no good reason, call people racists. And you, then you look at, well, what's the evidence? Well, it's this, or, and it's some stupid thing that every, everybody knows it's fake. Like, everybody knows they're just doing it to hurt people. I believe I mean, like the that, preferred that, that nomenclature no is white supremacist. Yeah, yeah, Racist yeah. is so 2007, Tom. Or, right, exactly. No, actually, what I mean, is it? That, it's you know. 2015? Yeah. But but Krugman, and I think, you know, look, there are a lot of people in America who disagree with me, but I don't think they're all stupid or beyond redemption or anything or that I could never have a meeting of the minds with them. But that is how he feels about at least half of America, that, that he could never under any circumstances really sit down and have a meeting of the minds with them. And I, I, it really, really comes through in this column. So uh, you can check it out, ContraKrugman.com slash 216. And are we going to have any links there? Anything interesting? Yes. Okay. So there'll be some stuff that uh, if you're interested in this topic – that will help you uh, dive uh, even more deeply into it. And speaking of dive, you can't do that uh, overboard, but you can dive <laughs> on the – you can't even dive on the pools on board. Just imagine yourself diving uh, into the beautiful, refreshing waters aboard the Symphony of the Seas in October 2020. But you've got to book now so you don't wind up in the utility closet. ContraCruise.com is the website for that. All right, everybody, see you next time. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for today. I don't know what is coming tomorrow, so I can't tell you about it, but I definitely have a couple of good guests coming up. I am very, very sad and sorry to report to you that Gene Epstein lost his debate at the Soho Forum against Stephen Moore on the subject of trade and China and tariffs and Trump. So we're going to have to get Gene on here to talk about what the heck happened because Gene Epstein is supposed to be invincible. So we're going to do a post-mortem on that one coming up soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, If you like and appreciate what I'm doing here, please join me over at supportinglisteners.com. The goodies you get are just endless. So go check those out, and thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.
Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.